millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new criminal case. One of the most darkest and frightening episodes of serial murder happened between September 15, 1986 and April 3, 1991 at Huaxiang, a small rural city in Jiangxi province. A similar event to this had never been experienced in South Korea before. There were at least 10 victims, all female, aged between 13 to 70 years old and wearing at least one red garment. According to the local police, tracking the killer was a race against time. But where and how to start in an era devoid of telephone tracing and the insufficient exploitation of DNA analysis? Then came the arrest of Yoon Siang Yeo, who was indicted in 1988. In the eyes of the investigators and the judiciary, there was no doubt that he was the culprit. When the battle appeared to be won on part of the authorities, the murderers continued following the same path as before, instilling more fright and psychosis. For the police, it was the beginning of a nightmare, a nightmare that will last for almost 30 years. Did they manage to unmask the real murderer? Come with me to visit, or rather revisit this case, worthy to be labeled as one of the darkest thrillers that happened in South Korea of the 80s, which was still torn by its turbulent past and a frantic race for development. Coming back to Haseong, a small town in the south of Seoul during the summer season of 1986. If the metropolis could boast of having skyscrapers, a gleaming transport network, and many business establishments, Huaxiang, on the other hand, was a very archetype, small, peripheral town where nothing much ever happened. What's more, one would feel as though he was in the countryside at the side of vast green rice fields soaked in water, a panorama instantly ruined as soon as you see the obscure bars of hideous, grey and identical buildings, the presence of which is a reminder that Huaxiang was one of those cities built to house especially those peasants who converted into proletarians, who had fled the countryside and mass in the late 1960s. In short, although not visually appealing, Huaxiang remains a quiet place where people know and greet each other every morning and where neighbors share a drink together during the long summer evenings. In the early 1980s, around 226,000 people lived in this region, south of the capital, sharing two-room apartments with Spartan comfort, in which about three generations lived together adhering to the ancestral traditions inherited from the countryside. Moreover, Huaxiang also includes many other villages where rice is the most extensively cultivated crop. 
most of the inhabitants were either rice growers or workers who were often uneducated, aware of only farming techniques and dealt with trades in this sector. And yet, no one complained. Men were content to bring home a regular paycheck and the housewives were pleased to plate a meal for their families daily. No act of violence or delinquency had ever been reported despite the obvious poverty and dark alleys of the city due to evident lack of lighting at nightfall. One of Young's major concerns was the obvious lack of street lamps. The governor would always make promises that were never kept, and the inhabitants were too accustomed to the old ways to revolt. Around 2 p.m. on September 15, 1986, Bark, a local rice farmer, set out to prepare the plots and proceed with seeding. The sun was set high in the sky, spreading piercing rays and humid heat across the land, which is a typical characteristic climate of that part of Asia, where winters are reminiscent of Siberia and summers felt like the desert. With a large straw hat to shield him from the dreaded rays of the sun, Bark glanced around his rice field, irrigating with water. The process of sowing to harvest took place in a traditional way just as it would 50 years ago, manually and with plenty of ox-drawn plows. Park paused for a moment to admire all the ceaseless hard work put in so far throughout the summer season. With the back of his hand, he crushed a mosquito that had come in contact directly with his nose. Mosquitoes are the scourge of rice fields. They are omnipresent in all seasons and are attracted by the humidity and vapor that emanates from the earth. As he bent down to get his tools out, Park suddenly saw something underneath. Something that looked strange. Like a human foot? The peasant rubbed his eyes, fearing he had assumed wrong. Approaching the object by dragging his plastic boots shot feet into the pool of starch, his heart was pounding, dreading the spectacle that awaited him. Amid the young rice shots was floating a body of an elderly, stocky and gaunt woman with arched legs and dressed only in pants. The farmer reached out with a shaking hand to try and move it, but she didn't move. She was dead. Help! Help! Go and get help! He cried out. It took less than an hour for the news to reach everyone in the village. A corpse of an unidentified woman in a paddy field, which was half naked and strangled with a sock. Everything suggested that she was murdered. Her neck, which was swollen and blue, bore the traces of the knot that choked her. Local authorities were promptly notified. Two police officers reached the place to make the first observations. They asked questions to the visibly shocked rice farmer who was surrounded by other locals. He was intimidated by the presence of the uniforms and was unable to articulate even a single sentence. In the aftermath, an ambulance arrived to transfer the corpse to the provincial hospital for an autopsy. It's Lee Wanheim! exclaimed the woman who managed to catch a glimpse and identify the disease's face before she was violently pushed back by the patrols. Get those people out of there! Get back to your work! roared the police chief warrant officer. Li Wan Aim was a resident of Wasiang, a 71-year-old retiree. Some knew her by sight, others more personally. She spent her days cultivating her vegetable garden and reselling her vegetables at one of the popular markets of Jianji. Li Wan Aim spent a lot of time at her daughter's place, who lived in Seoul and would return home at the end of every week. But who could blame this venerable woman, almost a grandmother, for inflicting such an end upon herself? After examining the body, the forensic team said the victim was raped 
and beat him before being strangled with a sock and thrown into the paddy field. She was probably murdered four days earlier, given the advanced state of the decomposition in which she was discovered by the rice farmer. Following this announcement, the police decided to search the premises in the hope of finding a clue. For more than a week, the entire community was kept on alert with daily searches. Every day, locals flocked in large crowds to observe the investigators' archaic methods in action from afar. It is true, this was the very first time that they had been called upon to carry out investigative work of such importance. They were not used to it and did not know where to begin. Ten days later, with no substantial new evidence to support, the local police were overwhelmed by the events and finally forfeited and abandoned the search, to the chagrin of the victim's daughter who pulled her hair in frustration and grief. The justice had dismissed the case. Subsequently, as it is customary, in this kind of situation, everyday life resumed in its normal course once the police left. Park and the other farmers walked back to the paddy fields and things calmed down for a while. Only for a while. On October 20th, 1986 evening, Park Yoon Suk, a 25-year-old worker, took the bus to return home on her own. Sitting in the back of the vehicle, she flipped through a fashion magazine she had just pulled out of her bag. Her eyes lingered for a long time on a pair of high-heeled leather boots. The price was certainly far from corresponding to her modest income. But if she managed to save money, say in about a month, she would be able to purchase them. Park Hoon Suk smiled to herself, already picturing herself with new shoes on. Songtan Terminus. She got off the bus. It was 9 p.m. The station was deserted, the streets dark, only the faint light of a lamp post allowed you to see a little clearly. When will this village be able to finally benefit from the lighting it deserves? Hyun Suk put the magazine back into her bag and hurried up. Her building was still a two-kilometer walk away. To get there fast, she decided to take a shortcut along a forest path that she had known like the back of her hand since childhood. But before that, she had across a giant water pipeline whose work was pending from about 20 years, before being suspended for lack of government funding. A huge, damp, dark, repulsive drain large enough for a dozen people to enter at the same time was all that remained from the aborted project. It now served as an underground passage. Hyun Suk remembered how she as a child together with her little friends, used to challenge each other to stay indoors within the drain as long as possible. They would usually run away after five minutes at the most. Things hadn't changed much since then. The young woman feared tripping on a rat and rushed headlong, almost running in the tunnel. Once outside freed, she took a deep breath and resumed a normal walking with them. That's it. She was not far from home. Only a few meters now separated her from her destination. As she opened her back to take out her keys, the young woman felt a hand close over her mouth as another punched her violently in the ribs. Hyunsuk reared up in pain. As she tried to scream and struggle like mad, trying to extricate herself from the hold of her attacker, whose face she could not see. But the grip was firm, powerful, and ruthless. Another blow to the head, and she lost consciousness. Her body was dragged to the bottom of a thicket. Three days later, the gruesome discovery of Park Hyun Suk's body, which was plunged into a canal, once again triggered a fresh fear. The memory of the swollen body of the 71-year-old grandmother floating in the paddy field was still too recent. Much like the previous victim, Park Hyun Suk was found half-naked and in a state of advanced decomposition. 
she was strangled with the panties she was wearing. The autopsy showed that, like Li Wan Aim, the young worker was also sexually abused. Jiangxi local police, who believed they were already done with the case, resumed the investigation again. The police searched the scene of the crime and found that the assassin had again left no clue behind. Not a piece of clothing, not a lock of hair, nothing that could lead them to a serious start in the investigation. Meanwhile, the psychosis began to gain around and spread. It sowed doubt and fear in those who, like Yun Suk, came home late at night from work at the factory. How were they going to manage to move around without fearing of their lives, knowing that only a few households had cars and even fewer working families? To calm heated spirits, the police decided to place patrols at the entrance and exit of the town. The initiative thus allowed all those who had a return on foot in the evening to feel more or less protected. But it did not last. Because two months after these first events, a third victim had been added to the previous ones. Her name was Quan Jingban, a 24-year-old housewife who had disappeared not far from her house on her way to do some shopping. Now, it can't be a coincidence anymore. Someone was bound to be behind all of this. Things were starting to look like a massacre. The shock after the news of the discovery of the last corpse in the same area where Hyun Suk's body was found began to persuade the residents that these were the pointers of a dangerous sexual predator, a maniac who certainly knew the schedule of victims, who observed their actions for long to be certain and to plan well ahead and come across them at the right time. Since the first murder in September 1986, local police now figured that the three murders could be committed by the same person. Now, let's talk about the local police. The firm is light years away from the widespread American methods and investigators in Seoul, most of whom had been trained in the United States or had done at least an internship there. Policemen of Jiangxi were the archetype of provincial vigilantes, seldom called upon, and most of their work involved sticking fines to taverns that sell unlicensed rice liquor or scattering drunkards at the exit. In short, a decent police force who knew each inhabitant and called out to them by name and which now found itself facing a problem far too big for its capacity. It is also worth remembering that at this time, surveillance cameras were not common, cell phones did not yet exist, and DNA analysis were not yet exploited, making the task painstakingly long and trying. Quickly overwhelmed by the events from the latest murder, Jiangji police decided to call in investigators from a neighboring town as reinforcements. The whole nation was beginning to take notice of what was now called the Huaxiang Murderers. In Seoul itself, the case made headlines for several weeks. The term serial killer, which was still unknown in South Korea, began to be used for the very first time. He reinforced an image of a lonely and itinerant killer that the country had never seen before. Meanwhile, in Jiangji province, fear was soaring, from Songtan to Paiyangtek and Huaxiang. No women dared to venture outside in the dark. To reassure the fairer sex, the men themselves began to patrol at night, armed with sticks and makeshift clubs, dividing themselves into small groups to stand guard after the police patrol retreated. On the women's side, any outing deemed useless was postponed until the next day in broad daylight in order to avoid any fatal encounter. Married women were accompanied by their husbands, who would wait for them at the exit of the factory while single ones were being accompanied by their brothers or neighbors. At that time, there was no street line and it was very dark in the streets, said a former resident of Huaxiang. 
I worked at the factory and came home at night. When I passed a man, I was scared to death. I have been advised not to put on red clothes. Another says, the famous red garments. Yes, because throughout the preliminary investigation, one point in common was shared by the victims. All three of them were wearing a piece of red garment, a sweater, a skirt, a coat. The investigation focused even more on this element when the shadow murderer struck for the fourth time on December 21, 1986, this time victimizing young Lee Ki Suk, whose body was found on the edge of a rice field in a terrible state. She was raped with an umbrella before being strangled with a belt. Besides, her whole body was bruised and her broken fingernails showed that she fought for a long time with her attacker before succumbing to his grip. Investigators found deep liaisons on her face and traces of semen in her genitals. A first genetic sample was taken. As South Korea did not yet have a specialized laboratory to carry out DNA analysis, the semen sample was sent to Japan, but the result gave away nothing. The final evidence was destroyed. The ruthless killings continued for the next year, often spaced two or three months apart. It was in this situation that the body of Hong Jing-yong, a 15-year-old high school student, was discovered once again at the bottom of a rice field on January 11, 1987. Like the previous victims, she was found with her hands clasped and strangled with a stocking and sexually assaulted. Like the others, she wore a red garment, a knitted woolen blazer that her mother had no difficulty in identifying, since she was the one who had made it for her. This only reinforced the local rumor which now pointed to a sexual predator unable to curb his impulses, disregarding the varying ages of his victims, a fetish drawn to the color red, probably hinting at his bloodthirsty side. He was also an unorganized killer, often with no material on hand as he suffocated his victims with their own belongings. It remains to be seen whether the killers were one or two or more. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So far, all crimes had been committed within a six-kilometer radius. The police, separated in groups of two, multiplied the boundaries in an attempt to trap the dreaded predator. 
Between Jiangxi police and those who came in to help them out, it was declared war, one believing only in the classic and linear investigation, while the other favoring the new methods employed in Seoul. Some policewomen convinced by the theory of red garment that might attract the murderer started to wear red in the hope of capturing the killer, but nothing happened. A sixth homicide occurred in May 1987, right under the nose of the police, killing a housewife in her 30s. Park Yuen Ju, whose body was found on a hill on the outskirts of the village, was also strangled and raped. The last person to see her was her husband as they parted at the bus station on a rainy day. Park Yuen Ju had forgotten her umbrella at home and returned to look for it and it was then that she came face to face with her killer. The situation was now beginning to take on far too serious and dangerous proportions to remain confined to the provincial level. The South Korean government then ordered the creation of a police squadron specially dedicated to hunt for the shadow killer, a unit made up of two million men, a first in the country. The idea was to move heaven and earth to find him, even if it meant devouting the next 10 years to do it. They did not skimp on the means either. Weapons were directly acquired from the United States. State-of-the-art bulletproof vests, a canine brigade barely out of the kennels of the judicial police and a whole arsenal of off-road cars were deployed. In the aftermath, denunciations began to rain on supposed victims who escaped by miracle by the clutches of the killer. Some described him as paunchy and bald. Some said he had a prominent nose and fine hair, while others claimed that he wore glasses or balaclava. Robotic portraits were made based on these indications, but the results were approximated or did not match at all. During the forced deployment, there were no less than 21,280 suspects questioned and 570 DNA samples taken. However, despite all this gigantic work, the results were slow in coming and the killer himself continued to run with complete impunity, eventually making a seventh victim on September 8, 1987. It reduced all the work done by the investigators and special forces to smoke. The seventh victim, Anjin Soon, was in her 40s and a housewife. She disappeared when she got off the Palton Neon bus station, well within the Huaxiang region. She was found gagged, strangled, and raped, just like the others. Semen traces of blood and hair were taken for analysis, but these two pieces of evidence did not match any genetic trace on the long list of suspects. There remains the capillary proof, which for its part was sent to another laboratory for expertise. But again, no convincing results were obtained. This resulted in a great sense of helplessness and frustration among all the forces of order. How did he always manage to escape them? How is it that despite their best efforts, they have not yet managed to capture him? At the end of September 1987, while the investigation into the murder of Hang Ji Soon was still ongoing, a first testimony hit the headlines. A crucial testimony from a certain Kang, a bus driver in profession, who said he saw a man he's never seen before standing outside the bus station on the night Yan Ji Soon was murdered. The bus driver painted a striking portrait, a slim individual dressed in black jacket and grey canvas pants, with brushed hair and pointed nose and a slender build, approximately aged between 20 and 25 years. When Kang stopped his bus in front of the station, the man apparently climbed upstairs to ask for a cigarette before going down to smoke it, after which he disappeared, as if he vanished. Following these new descriptions, yet another portrait was produced resulting in something more or less similar. 
but research in this direction was still not yielding anything. Life in Huaxiang had not been the same since the start of the unexplained killings and some residents were already considering selling their homes to move elsewhere to escape the climate of terror that now reigned throughout the region. Every woman, no matter how old, now dreaded being next on the killer's list. Red garments were eliminated from all wardrobes. It was essential to remain discreet, in the hope that this did not attract too much attention from the abominable assassin. What the people of Huaxiang did not yet know was that the killer no longer just followed his victims through side roads and bus stations. In the fall of 1988, two years after the first murder, Park Sang-hee, a 14-year-old college girl, returning home after school. The evening was going on as normally as possible in the world. The young girl had dinner with her mother and grandmother before going to take a shower and head to bed. The next morning, her mutilated and strangled corpse was found by her mother. The police were quick to notice that the process used by the killer this time was completely different from the previous crimes, which led them to conclude that it can only be a simple imitator, a fanatic amateur of a killer. Otherwise, why would he decide to change the process so suddenly? After the murder of young Park Sang-hee, the police began to investigate her family's close neighborhood. Suspicions did not take long to weigh on a certain Yun Seong-yo. Yun Seong-yo, a 22-year-old who worked in a leather processing workshop in Changcheong province. His colleagues described him as a shy and not very open young man. At this time, Yun was still single. He had never known a woman because he was far too self-conscious about his polio, which had made him lame since his childhood. Orphaned without much education, Yun Xiangyu began his professional career at 16 as a laborer on a farm. His ambitions was to become a specialized technician, but never could achieve this dream. According to the police, he was the ideal candidate. Everyone suspected him of sneaking into Park Sang-hee's room during the night to force her to have sex with him but Yoon assured that he would have never dared to physically approach her, let alone kill her. I never tried talking to girls or have been able to form any relationships with them. I was like, which woman would want a disabled person like me? He was finally arrested on July 27, 1989, while having dinner at home. When Yoon, completely taken aback, asked the police what they were doing there, they replied, it won't take long. At the police station, Yoon was interrogated for three days in a row. Three days of close and muscular interrogation where beatings were rained down on him. At the end of the fourth day, the police finally obtained a confession from him. Beaten by the police, weakened by lack of sleep, Yun recounted the course of the evening preceding the murder of the young woman. I went out for a walk after dinner to get some fresh air. I smoked a cigarette while walking. I had to stop each time to rest my crippled legs then walking a few more meters when I saw a light in the room of a house. I don't know what took hold of me at that moment. I had a sudden sexual urge, a desire for rape. A little inner voice told me what to do, just break into this room, immobilize this girl, and assault her against her will. It turned me on so much that I was shaking. And that's what I did. After strangling the young girl, Yin took away her clothes, which he burned before going home to sleep. The next day, he went to work as usual. For the rape and murder of the schoolgirl, justice sentenced Yoon Seong-yo to life imprisonment. According to the police and investigators, the murderer restored to what was known imitation crime. In other words, he was inspired by the modus operandi of the real killer. However, he would be charged with none of the previous crimes. 
After the arrest of Yoon, which generated much noise nationally, the killing stopped for a period of two years. Two years of respite especially for the inhabitants of Hua Xiang and its surroundings. But the semblance of newfound security also encouraged many of them to lower their guard to show less concern. It was then the drama struck once again. On November 15, 1990, a ninth victim was found. A 14-year-old college girl whose name was Kim Mi-jung. No, definitely it was far from over. The nightmare started again, and with it also the psychosis associated with it. For investigators, the murderer deliberately chose to take a break, to persuade the population that the death cycle was over, to surprise them better later. A technique as sadistic as it was unexpected. Kim Mi-jung was kidnapped, raped, and murdered while on her way home from school. Her body was found on November 16, 1990, the day after her assassination. Like the first eight victims, the teenager was strangled with her bra and her body was thrown into a field. The height of sadism was that the killer inflicted nearly 38 lacerations all over her body with a razor. The tenth and the latest victim to date was Kwon Soon Sang, a 69-year-old retiree. Murdered in Bansongri, while sitting at the bus station on the evening of April 3, 1991. Her corpse was found in the woods of a nearby hill showing signs of violence. This time, the police took a shoe print, which was later unusable, and also traces of sperm corresponding to blood group B. However, even with the murderer's DNA and blood type on hand, the police felt helpless. Remember, this was the very beginning of the 90s, and the study of genetic data was still in its infancy. So what to do? Wait for an 11th victim to act? The investigators felt entangled in a terrible vicious circle where the murderer took pleasure in playing with their nerves. Former detective Park Du Man, now in his 70s, recounted this horrific time. After years of hunting down the killer in rice paddies and fields, I can tell you that our hatred towards him was unimaginable. Perhaps one of the most disturbing anecdotes on the subject was the one which states that the serial killer used to kill on rainy evenings, ideally in autumn and spring, just after a song played on the radio that he would have requested. Indeed, while carrying out the investigation in the premises of the radio station, the police were amazed to find the song was still played on the airwaves just like how it was before the 10 murders that occurred from 1986 to 1991 the mysterious listener's identity was never revealed or known to the general public but had continued to fuel urban legend. Some would say that the song probably brought back painful childhood memories to him. Others that it was a ritual he created in order to assert his trademark. But surprisingly and for no clear reason, the crime suddenly stopped for several years in a row. Many psychoanalysts were called upon to paint the psychological portrait of the killer, who claimed that the serial killer never stops killing. No matter the reason and circumstances, he always finds a way to continue his tireless hunt. But then, why the sudden stop of murders? In both Hua Xiang and Seoul, debates on the subject had long garnered general attention. The inhabitants believed that something serious had happened to the killer, an incurable disease which had forced him to remain immobile and interment in a psychiatric hospital, a prison sentence for any other reasons, a move abroad, or even that he was dead. In the early 2000s, still without any new supporting evidence allowing the investigation to continue, the investigations, which lasted nearly 15 years, was finally closed and therefore the case was closed too. Because in South Korea, all crimes have a statute of limitations of 15 years if they remained unsolved. 
the murderer is no longer at risk of legal action, regardless of the degree of seriousness of the offense. However, it turns out that the statute of limitations for the last crime expired precisely in 2009, reducing all hopes to nothing. It is important to make it clear at this point in our story that South Korea at the time of the first crimes was totally different from today. Rural communities like Hwasyang have since integrated the urban space. Many fields and rice paddies have given way to new, more efficient installations, allowing faster development of the land. Not to mention considerable progress in the field of criminal medicine and the analysis of DNA data, all of which are treasured in a DNA data bank, including the data from crime scenes in Hwasyang several years earlier. Despite this, the case was no longer of interest to many despite the media hype it had generated. Moreover, many young people have never heard of it. It will take until the film is released that public opinion shows interest in the affair again. Indeed, in 2003, director Bong Joon-ho released Memories of Murder. The film tells the story of Hwa Siang's crimes and paints the portrait of an elusive and cruel serial killer obsessed with sex and violence. Upon release, the film was a resounding success in South Korea, and received positive reviews from local and international media. We're not saying, however, that the release of the film suggested that the case would ultimately be resolved, but at least its extensive media coverage encouraged investigators to reopen the case. It wasn't until September 2019 that new revelations turned the tide of history. They shed light on the matter that many believe to be eternally unsolved. Through a press conference, Banji sued General Superintendent of Jiangxi Nambu Provincial Police made an announcement that surprised everyone. He revealed that DNA evidence kept by the police for 30 years had finally been analyzed. It was indeed three similar genetic fingerprints that were reported on three of the corpses found in Huaxiang. Thanks to advances in science, one name also stood out, Li Chun-jae. Police located his latest address, a modest apartment he shared with his wife in a village in Jiangxi but the apartment had been abandoned for several years and the neighbors had not heard from them. In fact, Lee Chu Jae was currently behind bars, serving a life sentence for the rape and murder of his sister-in-law in 1994. Born in 1966 in Hua Siang, he spent the first 30 years of his life there. He was the second child of a family of peasants converted to proletarians. During his childhood, he watched helplessly as his little sister drowned in a pond an episode that traumatized him for a long time. At 11 years old, he was the victim of sexual abuse inflicted by his elder brother. For fear of reprisals, he never dared to tell anyone. In 1983, after graduating from secondary school, Lee Chun-jae was enlisted in the army for military service. For three years in a row, he held the position of tank pilot. He returned to civilian life in 1986 to work as a laborer in an auto parts factory. In 1992, he married a woman he knew in his factory. The romance was short-lived, barely a year, after which his wife ended up leaving him for good. This breakup, according to Chun's mother, drove him mad with grief and anger. He later ambushed his 18-year-old sister-in-law, lured her into her apartment with a motive of raping and killing her. It was precisely for this crime that he was sentenced first to death by the Busan prosecutor's office before being committed to life imprisonment. At first, Lee Chun-jae denied the whole thing before retracting and eventually began a long series of confessions in a dribbled manner. When asked by the police on the motive that prompted him to rape and kill women, Chun gave an evasive answer. 
I decided one day when I got up in the morning, I had murder women. He first confessed to two murders, gave himself a month-long truce before confessing the ten others that had occurred in Huaxiang and two more that the police had not managed to identify. A total of nine interrogations were needed to finally be able to establish the truth. But was Lee Chun Jae hiding more? The news of the murderer's confession left all Koreans in awe and utter horror. The serial killer who managed to slip through the cracks for more than three decades, who led a mighty squadron of special units made up of two million men, who sowed terror and psychosis everywhere he was passing, finally spoke. On top of that, he didn't look demeanor gaunt as he was speaking almost in a whisper. So was he the dreaded serial killer? In the sole criminal investigation department, this was a red-hot topic. Many could not believe that the mysterious killer was finally behind bars and that he was even ready to cooperate with that pressure. 53-year-old Lee Chun Jae was a skinny little man with a pale, pointed face, shiny black hair resembling a cat's coat. Sitting on a chair, he quietly recounted in great deal the circumstances, the procedure, the schedule, and the shortcuts he took to track down his victims and their terrible agony under the pressure of the knot pressed around their necks. The police were both disgusted and scandalized by so much sadism. Lee's coldness, the detached tone he used in talking about all of this, was unsettling and chilling. But Lee Chu Jae wasn't content with just oral histories. Equipped with a piece of paper and a black felt-tipped pen, he drew plans, detailed diagrams, gave information on every victim, like this one had dandruff. That one wore a lace underwear. Teenage girls had small, firm breasts, while the older ones had soft, saggy flesh and took longer to breathe their last breath. He added that the first victim, Lee Wan Am, had calloused hands because she was a peasant woman from the older generations. No details escaped him. Asked about why the color red was supposed to have attracted him, Lee Chun Jae said that was just one of the details. It amused him when he read it on newspapers at the time. In all, Lee Chun Jae confessed 14 homicides including 10 perpetrated in Huaxiang between 1986 and 1991, plus four others committed during the same period but in another village. The identities of these four other women remain unknown, although a new investigation has been opened into the matter. On November 2, 2020, Lee Chun Jae went to Seoul Court of Justice where he confessed to 14 homicides for the second time including 10 of them from Huaxiang, without mentioning at least 36 sexual assaults on minors of both sexes. At the moment, he is still serving his sentence in a maximum security prison in Busan. This is how the story of the elusive Huaxiang murderer, nicknamed South Korea's Zodiac Killer, was put to an end. Why did he kill all these women? Difficult to answer. According to police and criminal medicine experts, Chun was certainly a psychopath, someone who likes harm and assaulted for sexual purposes and then to kill. There is no doubt that he is also a warrior, collector and necrophiliac, using a single and particular operating mode, giving priority to rainy evenings and poorly lit streets in order to be able to isolate and easily attack his victims. Chun had never needed any accomplices. Lush vegetation, vast rice paddies and densely forested hills also provided fertile ground for his activities. The place was hilly enough to conceal bodies once the crime had been accomplished. During the entire period of his crimes, no witnesses were ever present at the scene and no one caught him red-handed. Yoon Siang-yo, the first suspect to be arrested, was released on parole in 2009. In all, he spent 19 years behind bars. 
plagued by depression during his long years of incarceration. Yoon came out physically and psychologically weakened. He later told Korean media that he confessed to young Park Sang-hee's crime in September 1988 only to stop the police from torturing and beating him. It was a time when confession without evidence was enough to convict someone. When having spent three days without sleeping, one can no longer reason correctly and coherently. Yoon certainly delivered his confession so that the police finally left him alone, said an investigation reporter. He has since filed a complaint against seven police officers, now retired for abuse of power and ill-treatment, but none have been prosecuted or convicted. Even though justice has proven in my innocence, I want to erase my false accusation and regain my lost honor because that is all I have left with, Yoon Siang-yo said during an Arirang TV report in 2019. For those who wish to get further information about the subject, I recommend the excellent Korean opus, Memories of Murder, a successful film both in terms of the plot and in terms of choice of cast and music. The production captured the essence of 1980s South Korea very skillfully, a mixture of a thriller and exaggerated realism that has everything to appeal to enthusiasts of criminal cases. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.